Hello, everyone. Welcome to this special edition of Mind Podcast. Uh, this is Adit Kapadia, and together with me, Sunanda Vashisht. How are we doing, Sunanda? Good. How are you? Pretty good. Uh, midweek podcast, huh? Midweek podcast. I know. We have to keep. Every time there's a midweek podcast, there is something interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, something new. It has to be. Otherwise, it has to be. Otherwise, nothing motivates us to come at in 40-degree weather. <laughs> <laughs> Just joking. But we're very pleased to welcome our guests on this week's podcast. It is uh, Mr. Joseph Emmett with Vedanta Institute, Houston. He is a uh, scholar, author, has studied Vedanta in India for and lived in India for more than a decade, Has uh, is a disciple of Swami Parthasarthi, and has had a fascinating journey with which we'll be talking about with him uh we'll be talking about vedanta and you know um a host of other issues so stay tuned on this podcast welcome to mind podcast mr Amit. thank you very much I have to say that you know more about India than all of us put together on this podcast. So it's already making me, you know, something somewhat of a back foot. So I am just going to listen to what Mr. Abbott has to say today. <laughs> Indeed. So let me get things kicked off. So how how was your journey? I mean, you were you are from Houston. You were uh, were you born and raised here? In I was born in Houston. Uh, we lived here as well as Austin, and then we went to Washington D.C., uh, where I attended high school and then was in St. Louis uh, at Washington University in St. Louis uh, where um, the journey started where I met Swami Partisarati, my teacher. You were in high school? Uh, Second year of university. Second year. How did you, uh, what what attracted you? Were you looking for something? Yes, very much. I was that kid with the books falling out of my pockets the last couple of years of high school. very inspired by the concept of spiritual enlightenment. Mm. Um, because that's not what high school kids do. They don't usually talk about spiritual enlightenment. I'm not, I guess so. I don't know. I, I seem to have uh, had a lot of friends that were also interested in Buddhism and uh, Zen and yo- yoga was just sort and of And what started. faith were you raised in? I was raised in the church, in okay. the Christian church. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and now I know that a lot of the values are, are the same. So. Of course. I'm sure that that played a role mm-hmm. in my my thinking, mm-hmm. but I was particularly taken by the concept of reality as an experience, uh, which is very uh, central idea in Eastern philosophy. Is the truth reality is not something that you put in a test tube where you understand in a formula, <coughs> but is actually an experience. And Buddhism was talking um, in that language. I was very inspired by that. Um, and thought that I could go to university and uh, be told how to experience enlightenment and live a more enlightened life. But what I found when I got to university was just a lot of history and anthropology and Mm -hmm. sort of talking about spirituality, theory, theory, history, anthropology, but there was no guidance in how to live. Uh, Teaching you tools of the trade rather than the trade itself. Right. You're, it was more about it. Mm. If you wanted to be spiritual, this or the history of people who have been spiritual. Right. And this is a great university in America. I mean, it has a fantastic comparative religion program. What uh, university? Washington, Washington University in, in St. Louis. And mm. So the great scholar Houston Smith was there, who's mm. one of the first comparative religion guys. So there were some great teachers there, but nobody was uh, struck me as speaking from experience. Which is what I was interested in. I wasn't really interested in becoming a scholar. So um, I started saying basically to the air, you know, um, I would like to meet someone who can teach me how to live 
this knowledge, how to actually live a life that's in the direction of that higher experience of spirituality. And uh, I went to, that summer I went to Greece, I was looking in monasteries, I went out to Boulder, Colorado and looked at Naropa, I was in Nova Scotia looking in in monasteries, all different traditions, Mm -hmm. and not really finding anything. And um, then uh, someone came into my class, a class, um, my first semester of sophomore year, and said there's a Swami on campus. So I I had seen one documentary about India. This is before Google, before the internet. Mm-hmm. India was still breaking out of wherever it was in yeah. the you know the early 90s had just happened. So there wasn't much information, at least for me, about India and Vedanta and Swamis. So I this documentary I had seen, all the Swamis were sort of babus, you know, dreadlocks and and uh, wearing a few little clothes. And yeah, being, I was about to say nothing. Yeah, yeah, some carried around on palanquin. So I expected. <coughs> And we're not very approachable. Not approachable, and, and that's what I expected when they yeah. said there's a Swami coming. Mm. Yeah. So I'm standing outside the building where the Swami is coming, and, and my teacher, Swami Parsarati, walked by. And he was 70 at the time. He's 90 now. Mm. But he, was, he looked 40 because he's super fit. Now he looks maybe, I don't know, 65. <laughs> and uh, so he walked by dressed in this dhoti korta and a corporate haircut, and I thought, oh, that must be the driver. Because <laughs> that can't be the Swami. Yeah. So then the, 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 he goes in, and I kind of followed in. I said, it's time. I haven't seen the Swami, but I'll go in. I went and sat down. They introduced him, Swami Parsarati. He gets up and starts speaking. 20 seconds into the talk, I said, my God, this man is speaking for, as an authority. <coughs> he has an authoritativeness. He's talking about truth in a way I've never heard anyone speak. And you, mind you, I'd been listening to great professors or whatever for a couple of years and read all these books. He had an authoritativeness that was different. Um, so I was extremely uh, taken by him immediately. And then at the end, he says, I have a school in India called an ashram where I'm teaching people to live this knowledge. You know, and this is exactly what I've been wanted. asking for. I about fell out of my chair. So I, t- I spoke to him and uh, informed him that would be my last semester at the university. And within a few months, I was in India studying with him at Vedanta Academy. Amazing. You know, Sadhguru, uh, Sadhguru Jogi Vasudev, yes. he often says that India is a land of seekers. Yeah. So it's almost, and I would sort of say that anybody who is um, looking for knowledge is a seeker. It doesn't matter whether he is from India or wherever he was from. So you were a seeker at that point and the teacher just manifested himself. And this is not something <coughs> unique to you. If you look at it, Swami Vekananda is the same thing. He went around you know, looking for a teacher and a teacher manifested himself. Uh, much later, um, Swami Chirmayananda, mm-hmm. he went around because his whole thing was that he's going to call the bluff of these Swamis because, yeah. you know. Tapavana. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, no, but he went to go yes. to Tapavana right. just to say that he's going to call his bluff because Absolutely. he just did not believe he was a reporter. Yeah. Yeah. And there, and that's this is exactly what he says 20 yes. seconds. Yes. He knew all it takes is 20 seconds. But also, I think what, what was the most fascinating part about what I heard from you was that uh, you. From an academic standpoint, you were only learning about the philosophers who were experiencing these things mm. and so forth, mm. and almost approaching it in a very structured academic way. Right. But life experiences don't go that way. Right. Like right. you did not go in your head, okay, the first minute this is going to happen, after 10 minutes this is what we're going to discuss. A flip of a switch is all. Right, right. All what it took. So when you actually went back to the ashram yes. to study, yeah. 
what was the key difference that you noticed in approaching religion from an academic perspective and sort of living it yourself? Superb question. So there's two things, shravana and manana. Mm -hmm. Okay. Shravana is listening. It's not just listening, but it's also taking in information. This is all that's happening in universities. They're, they're just constantly uh, pushing more and more and more information. So you read the Gita in three days and Dhammapada in three days and Tao Te Ching in three days or whatever. The ashram, we spend two years on the Bhagavad Gita. Two years, word by word, verse by verse, yeah. you know, like that. So Shravana is listening, but more important than Shravana is the Manana, where you stop and reflect and chew and think about it and uh, make the knowledge your own. This is what we mean by living it. So this, th otherwise you're just gaining intelligence. You're just gaining information. So you have to distinguish between intelligence and intellect. When we, so the whole thing at the ashram, the whole um, practice at the ashram is strengthening the intellect, the buddhi. Mm -hmm. You know, that ability to reason and judge and discriminate and guide your personality mm -hmm. with the information. Then you live it automatically. Absolutely. Versus merely carrying around a bunch of information <coughs> on your head. It's useless to you. It, it just makes you arrogant. That's about it. To actually what practice. What does this it. mean in real life? When yeah. we say that you know we are living, you are now living Vedanta. Yeah, yeah. What does this mean in real life? How does your real life change? You gain uh, dynamism in action, physically, uh, emotionally. At the emotional part of your personality, you you purify, you detach, you become more universal in your affection. You become less attached or focusing on only you know my specific relationships you have a broader heart and intellectually you develop clarity and is this tangible tangible differences you can feel oh absolutely and we do programs with all kinds of people not only spiritual groups with corporate groups all of the time within a day or two they get tools for self-management that increase their uh, productivity that eliminate stress that develop their relationships, that make them more active. It's our own minds and thinking and indiscrimination and all this that gets in the way of ourselves. So it, it, it immediately helps people to achieve whatever it is that they want. And of course, the furthest extension of that is self-realization or spiritual enlightenment. But long before that highest goal, you can immediately start to gain what we call objectivity. Yes. But going back in your autobiographical details, so now you are in India. So what happens? You spend two years there. So when do you decide that you are going to, this is going to be what you will be doing for the rest of your life? So we were going back to your autobiographical details. So you are now in India. You've done your two-year um, program or your two-year course. Why not come back and join the workforce and what did you do after that? When did you decide that this is going to be your life? Uh, so first of all, it, it's a three-year residential program, uh, just uh, for the sake of uh, talking about Vedanta Academy mm -hmm. correctly. Uh, so, um, you know, the thought of teaching and um, doing the work we're doing now honestly did not really uh, enter my mind until, the, I don't know, the late 2000s, 2006. So I came back and went to, I stopped by Wash U. Uh, I meant to just come back, visit my family, and go to India to study more with Swami. Because really, three years is nothing right. when it comes to Vedanta. You, at the end of three years, you realize, wow, I, I, okay, now I've scratched the surface. Yeah. So the interest was more in just studying and learning more and more, right? Uh, but I stopped by the university, and they told me, you've done a PhD, and we'll give you all this credit if you just write this paper about your experience. And 
so I ended up staying there and finishing my degree um, and then going back uh, to back the to uh, back to India for another uh, few years. And where is this ashram in India? It's near Lonavala, which mm-hmm. is a hill station Lonavala. between yeah. Bombay and Bombay. Pune. Yeah. Right. The, the village is called Malavli. Mm. Uh, it's a beautiful place. Um, so I, I went back uh, on and off then for years and basically uh, also set a, set a rule for myself never to spend more than six months without um, being in front of Swamiji. So this has ended up now being 50-something trips to India uh, as a result. So sometimes it's three months, sometimes it was six months, sometimes it was two years. So it's a bit of a long, windy path to describe uh, exactly what it was. But only later on did I start thinking, um, okay, maybe I could talk a little bit for the sake of, of the community, for the sake of sharing this knowledge, um, and and to to bring Swamiji to America and start organizing events for him to, to, to serve him and to serve the ashram in general. But that really didn't come up until 10 years or so into my into my studies. Wow. Very interesting. Very interesting. <clears throat> and I want to take you back to something that you talk about the <clears throat> talked about the memorizing part. That a lot of people believe that <clears throat> memorizing this or knowing 15 shlokas is okay that's it and that's only like I don't I wouldn't even say that's the beginning right that's just probably a benchmark from where you need to go yes, towards yeah. a lot more thing <clears throat> so did you find that when you talk to a lot of people in India as well yes they're having the same issue on this like not exploring the in depth of what the shloka was trying to say or what the book was trying to say or something Everywhere, this is happening. You know, it's not just India. People, of course, no, yeah, the yeah. reason I brought it yes, India was yes. because you were interacting with people on the ashram for extended periods of time. Yes, and then you would go out and meet a lot of people who say that they believe in Vedanta or they do study yeah. about this. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's so yeah, and there were people who could memor- recite the whole Gita backwards. Precisely, but um, this this is not what brings about uh, a change in your personality. Right. Is it's only information in your head, you know, and uh, it makes you. The worst thing is it makes you feel like I know, and that's that's the that's death for you spiritually. The the most important thing is to understand you don't know anything. When you understand you don't know anything, that's a seeker, as you were mentioning. Mm-hmm. When you can say to yourself, not to advertise it, but say I don't know anything. I've been alive X many decades. I don't know where I came from. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know anything about life, if you're honest. Then you're, that's the birth of a seeker. Mm. So just memorizing a bunch of words and thinking, okay, I've got it because I know this thing or I can re- recite this thing, that is not um, wisdom. That is not living Vedanta. Mm. You've got to do manana. You've got to pause and think and reflect every day. And then you automatically begin to live it. And as you live it, you reap the benefits within yourself. You, you find yourself more peaceful, more clear, more objective more dynamic, more productive, all those things, which inspires you to study more. Because this, this just reminds me of a, a sort of a funny conversation I had with my Guruji. So I, um, I'm, I'm a Jain, and, okay. and when we were talking, he would always give me some shlokas to learn and then come to him and we would talk about the meaning. And mm. so one day I go to him, and this is when I was a lot smaller, uh, recite, you know, I'm like, hey, I learned this. He's like, well, that just shows me that you've mastered Gujarati. That uh, doesn't mean superb. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't mean that you have learned anything you in this. Anything. Yeah, yeah and, and, and that just disarmed me. <laughs> 
<laughs> then uh, we went and you know yeah. unfortunately he, yeah he's no longer around uh, but uh. but you know some the the things that you know we we learn from them and just yeah. one statement yeah. and whenever i read something without really understanding the essence that's what comes to my mind mm, yeah and and as you say <coughs> having a guru in your life is so important for that because you know i i've seen swamiji for 20 years which is a fair amount of time right to understand what balance looks like what dynamic action looks mm-hmm. like what selflessness selflessness looks like what objectivity looks like so it's not just a theory and then living in the ashram we practice all of this we serve the place we we have devotional practices we have the study so we get to understand by experience and by example mm-hmm. what this knowledge is really asking us to become yeah i wanted to ask you something we'll just go a little bit deeper So Vedanta to a lay person like me um is literally end of Vedas Ved ka ant aur Veda end of Vedas or you would say summary of Vedas or the best part of Vedas is Vedanta does Vedanta mean different to all the seekers of Vedanta No Vedanta is another word is Sanatana Dharma so yes. it's the <coughs> eternal principles mm-hmm. Correct So it's comparable to science, right? So the law of gravity was the law of gravity whether Isaac Newton or anyone else measured it or said it existed. It was existing, it was governing. You, if you stepped off a building and, and before Isaac Newton you still fell to the ground at 32 <laughs> feet per second per second, right? Yeah. So the laws are functioning. The the laws of life and living are Vedanta. So they're not dependent on one seeker's interpretation or another seeker. Our job is only to best understand them as best as we can but they are independently uh, scientifically true it's a subjective science so the law for example if you are selfish you will be agitated period there's no you cannot get away from Cause that law it, yeah this is just how it is mm-hmm. a person may put on airs of not being agitated but they will be disturbed <coughs> an, an unselfish person a selfless person a giving person a sacrificial person will be peaceful will be able to sleep in 20 seconds you know will be uh relaxed in their life so these are certain laws of life there's so many so vedanta's these laws of life that if you study it's like reading a manual it's like reading the manual of living it just makes you live better versus right. not reading the manual and trying to use an appliance or whatever you you can mess it up or you won't use it fully that's mm-hmm. the the main point so it's it's science it's like science a manual of life So uh, you would say Bhagavad Gita is a manual of life it's just how to live life you wouldn't you wouldn't call it religion in narrow term the way the word is used today No no it has it's not religion at all it it, it's just a philosophy in fact chapter 3 is what we uh, have based so what Swamiji has translated into modern language for all these business people we deal with Mm-hmm. YPO Aspen yeah. Institute World Economic Forum all the best business schools in the world Swamiji has spoken to I've spoken to groups of that level as well mm-hmm. It's just chapter 3 of the Bhagavad Gita you know how to act how to how to act without uh, attachment to the fruits of your action and all of the points that are made in the third chapter right. is is being translated for these people just in different language mm-hmm. it, So it's just a living manual any human being any human being learns it they will benefit from to summarize it it's almost like it's not even that how to conduct yourself in public life i guess yeah. when you meet other people right? 
That's part of it. Oh, sure. I mean, relationships are a big part of it. People ask questions a lot, whether working relationships or home relationships. Because right now, the kind of world we live in, where there's so much interconnectivity, it's almost even the questions to to the spiritual leaders have become selfish in general. Mm -hmm. Yes. That they only want to uh, ask questions. Uh, If you're in a room of a thousand people, he doesn't care what the other 999 think. Even though the information that they give might benefit that person, he's only concerned about, I have these five questions right answer them for me there's all different grades of, of people that approach teachers of, of course I, I mean yeah. I'm, I'm again I'm yeah. hyper generalizing right, it. Right, right. but when you said that you address like larger audiences or something yes, yes. you you're gonna tend to find a lot of people and and this is not to suggest that uh, give them put them in a bad light or something no, I have always it's just believed, that's how it is right I've now. always believed the quality of a seeker determines the quality of a teacher Hmm. or a guru. Hmm. I have always believed that. Hmm. I have seen this. So, Narendra Nath, a.k.a. Swami Vivekananda, would only find Ramakrishna Paramahansa. Hmm. 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 So, it is Swami Tejomayananda um, would only find, you know, hmm. Swami Chinmayananda. Hmm. Hmm. So, it is and some leading lights hmm. that you know, people we don't even know about. People hmm. who have not been written about because they do not believe in quote-unquote PR. Right, so right. you walk through the roads of um, Rishikesh, for example, mm-hmm. who often, mm-hmm. and then in these little cottages, you mm-hmm. will find this wealth of information, sure, sure. and nobody has ever approached them, no journalist has ever approached them, right. you know, because they don't look approachable. Yeah, yeah. But if you go there, uh. and the amount of wealth they give you. It's incredible. It's a, it's a, it's it's a galaxy you. of it's saints. A galaxy of saints there. Sure, there are incredible. some, I don't have a better word to use, some bad apples that you see on mm. TV all the time and mm. they give mm. bad name to the thing. Mm. But they are so far and few mm. in between. Just because media, you know, it's a good story for media because mm. uh, we work in media and we know that um, Dog bites a man is never a story. Um, <laughs> you know, man bites a dog is a story. So those, those little makes you no, because the wealth this of information that's on the streets. No, of I'll put it's it basically. in the more common terms. We had this debate when you had the episodes of that show, The Believer, or something with yeah. Reza uh, Aslan yes, on CNN yes, that yes. came yeah. in, Agoris yeah. and stuff, yeah. and how a one-sided narrative was presented and yeah. stuff. And I mean, yeah. we had lots of rebuttals to that episode and stuff uh-huh, like that. Uh-huh. But what was interesting was also, and I, I only, I mean, of course the show I don't support what was said the positive that came on our side was a lot of stories that were not told or that at least I did not know or Sunanda did not know came out hey mm-hmm. this is a, another th- this is another phase this is another way of looking at it mm-hmm. and that's what I always find fascinating about any debating any topic mm-hmm. that the best things come yes yeah, sure some give out the worst things also yeah. but the best things come out and that's what we need to hold yeah. on to mm-hmm. I know. so Absolutely. you said uh, Vedanta is a, you know, we'll take a break and we'll come back. So, um, earlier, a little bit ago, you were saying Sanatan Dharma is eternal truth. That's the way it's translated and that's what Vedanta is. Do you see need for it and scope for it outside of, of, outside of, geographical space of India mm. and some other seekers like you who might travel to India for you know for seeking it do you see a need and a scope for it in the bigger world absolutely in the sense that when you say a scope for it 
a scope for thinking, a scope for questioning, a, sc a scope for uh, the need to be apply reason and rationality to our lives and to the community uh, as it as it is. Turn on the news. Yeah. You know the the, the there's so much uh, not to be a dark, but there's so much militancy. There's so much factionalism. There's so much sectarianism. There's mm -hmm. so, there's so much uh, irrational suffering going on. The mm -hmm. divorce rate in the Western world is insane. Mm -hmm. The yes. drug use is insane. These are all symptoms of the fall of the human intellect, which is one of Swami's great introductory texts, the fall of the human intellect. This is what's happened. There's no thinking. There's no ability to govern ourselves. Mm -hmm. Everybody's stressed out. Half the country's on pills. Everybody's very, I mean, it's, it's like saying, I don't know what to compare it to. I mean, it's not only is there a scope for it, this is the most essential thing that humanity needs, lest we destroy ourselves. And we may still destroy ourselves. I, I'm honestly speaking, I don't know if it's too late, to be frank with you. But we've got to start thinking. People right. have got to start questioning. People have got to develop their intellect so that mm -hmm. we can survive in, in this world as, as a individually survive in some sort of a, a enjoyable way and as a society without literally destroying each other. And what you, uh, just want to add something, what you said, we've got to start questioning. Yes. Because that, I think, is the key. Uh, XYZ doesn't like to be questioned and ABC doesn't like to question. Right, right. And that's why you're gonna have, you're having increase in conflicts and so yeah. forth. And, yeah, yeah. and the problem is that if somebody doesn't know the answer to something, rather than questioning it to some, another expert or somebody who, who might be a little more knowledgeable, mm. they just give the answer that suits them. Sure, sure. And that creates a whole environment of ignorance, yeah. I guess, that we're even facing more day to day. Right. My question was more mundane. My question was, Vedanta, even to people who live in India, who understand the language, who have it sort of in their cultural memory, uh, they may not study it, but it's somehow in the cultural memory, is still very, not very approachable. Right, right. For the simple reason, it has not been translated as much as it should be in sure. different languages. It has the the commentary is not available as much as it should be. Um, it has not been broken down in a way that people understand. I'm just smiling because you are defining what Swamiji saw in 1952 or whenever and started writing Vedanta treatise The Eternities. I'm not selling books, I'm telling you. I'm telling you because what you just described is what he produced after 20 years. Vedanta treatise The Eternities takes the, presents the entire Vedanta from the simplest to the most subtle ideas uh, in English in, in a format that is uh, one to the other. You know, it's a progressive uh, thought flow. Anybody can pick up that book and slowly digest it and read it. This is exactly what we're doing, is trying to bring that that this, the concepts of Vedanta to the world. Not so much all the trappings and the stories and the ritual and all that. You come to our ashram, it, it's, it's a scientific and industrial research organization recognized by the government of India. Wow. It, there's no temple there. It looks like, you'll think it's like a Japanese garden or something. It looks, it looks like an institute, you know. We have, we have corporate groups coming there uh, to, to study and, and go on retreats because what the focus there is these ideas, which is what you're saying is needed. That just, okay, give me the ideas. The culture is fantastic, but if you just get stuck with the culture, it's like 
uh, only keeping the package and not enjoying the chocolates. The packaging in India for the Vedanta is so beautiful. It's endless and ornate, but the teachings are simple, down-to-earth truths of how to live, how to govern yourself, how to govern your life. This has been lost. It's been lost over a course of time Mm -hmm. for the sake of materiality and sensuality and whatever. So this is our whole mission with this Vedanta Institute Houston and Vedanta Academy as Swamiji's organization. The whole mission is to bring these values back to the front of the mind of the people. And you're right, it's, it's, it's very down to earth. So moving on, I wanted to ask you one thing about the current situation. Like you said in the 1990s, you had only seen one documentary about India. Yeah. In your trips back and forth to India, mm-hmm. um, say from 2007 to 2017, I'm just picking the last decade. Sure, so sure. How much difference have you seen in terms of knowledge of the West towards Vedanta or the, I'm looking for a word, uh, how do they perceive Vedanta? Do they do they look at it a little differently than what they did 10 years ago? Or was there just no knowledge about it 10 years ago? In the West, you mean? In the West, in the, in the West. Oh, for sure there's an awakening. Yeah. For sure there is. And uh, uh, I think the whole yoga movement is also influential in that. Um, yeah. The Bhagavad Gita, we were watching... Uh, some TV show the other day, and they qu- he quoted the Bhagavad Gita. What was it? It was an American show? Madam Secretary. Yeah. Oh, Madam, my gosh. In Madam Secretary. Show. Yeah, we were like, oh, Bhagavad Gita. He, he actually said Bhagavad Gita. So I think there's a lot more cross-pollination between mm-hmm. India and the U.S. in general, okay. which is fantastic. Um, and uh, so, yeah, much more awakening to Vedanta. And like I said, uh, see, Swamiji's, what he's done is strategically trying to reach influencers and yeah. leaders and letting it trickle down, trickle down spirituality, if you were. So mm-hmm. he's been doing this work in a big way um, at very high levels in, here in America and around the world. And we're starting to see a lot more familiarity, a lot more embrace. People aren't thinking it so much of it as an India thing anymore. Right. Of course, with all due respect to Bharat, you know, that this is where, it, where it came from. We know that's where it came from. But people are really starting to recognize, hey, these guys have a handle on something that's universal that we can all benefit from. And eventually that's that's the underlying message, isn't it? Well, because Sanatan is universal. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Sanatan is saying. universal and timeless tradition. Yeah, absolutely that eternal. No, yeah. absolutely eternal tradition. Let me ask you a um, personal question. How do you keep, and it's an allegorical question, how mm. do you keep your knife sharp? Knife as in the brain. How do you yeah. keep it sharp and focused? Yeah. So Henry David Thoreau, uh, the student of Emerson, all yeah. Gita students. Yes. He said, in the early morning, I bathe my intellect in the stupendous and cosmogonal philosophy of the Bhagavad Gita. This is what he was doing at Walden Pond. <laughs> they, they won't teach you that at high school. They won't. But, they that's, won't tell you that. but that's what he was doing. So this is or what... for that uh, Eliot. Right. Wasteland. Sure, sure. And Whitman and so many yeah, others. Whitman. So this is what we... This is what we do. Every morning, this morning included, uh, we wake up at 4 a.m. in Brahmamuhurtam mm. and study and reflect upon these higher values. We read Vedanta Treatise, we read the Gita, we read the Upanishads, whatever it is that we're studying. There's a course of study that's scientific and methodic. We're not just picking up any book. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've been given this guidance by Swamiji on, on the course that we continually go over and when mm-hmm. we finish, we start again. And so it's an exercise of the intellect every morning, which we learned in the ashram. The ashram starts at 4 a.m. and taught us how to live that life, you know. So we continue that practice here. Mm-hmm. And it's, at, you know, we bathe our bodies, we brush our teeth, we wash our hair, all these things. Uh, mm-hmm. So how can we just let the intellect sit there and gather dust? 
right? So this is what we do. Every morning you've got to bathe your intellect in knowledge. Knowledge is the only way that, it, that you can stay sharp. Otherwise, you're right. You'll slowly get hung up with um, the world. Yeah. Semantics. <laughs> Semantics. But more, more than that, the world is coming at you from all sides. Oh, absolutely. More. Yeah. So you'll just, you'll just get completely involved in, in life in the world and never have a chance to maintain that objectivity. And of course, uh, Swamiji's company and uh, the satsang of our uh, our our fellow uh, students at Vedanta Academy and go there regularly, <coughs> and our, the people that we study with. So we lead study groups here um, all over the city, and they are satsang for us as much as we are for them. So all of these things combined is keep the knife sharp. Keeps the knife sharp. Absolutely. So for all of those who are listening to this podcast right now, and if they want to approach you, reach you, if they're influenced by what you're saying, or yeah. if they want to be part of this tradition, sure. what is the best way for them to contact you? So the first of all, I would, I would ask them to go to VedantaWorld.org. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's the Swamiji's uh, website that has all the information about the, the mission from his side and everything that's going on in India. Um, here uh, we have a, a website which uh, will be coming soon, which is VedantaHouston.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now it's uh, VedantaMalibu.org because okay. that's where we just moved from. Yeah. And so they can see a lot of information there. So Vedanta yeah. Houston will be a proper brick and mortar place? No, no, no. We, unlikely. Uh, we teach in various places, like the hall at the consulate where we yeah. met. Uh, yeah. uh, Consul General has offered us yes. to have a class there. Yeah. There's a, a yoga studio here, sometimes in homes, mm. uh, businesses, all types of various venues where we meet and, and discuss. So there's no brick and mortar place where people can come. No, if they need no. that, they would have to go to India. They would go to Vedanta, Vedanta Academy. Yeah. yeah, our whole focus is, is supporting the Academy and, and uh, leading people to knowledge here. And they can always send me an email, josephemmett at gmail.com. And okay. for all our listeners, I mean, in Houston and Sugar Land, I mean, you can, Mr. Emmett is going to be here. So, yes. And yeah. you would probably know about, like, if you go to the VedantaHouston.org, you will know about the upcoming events and stuff like that. Right. So you'll right. be able to meet him and, you know, talk to him and learn more about him. But trust me, we we wish we had a couple more hours to talk about. We could <laughs> yeah. go on and on. We could do it again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but so thank you so much for sure. joining us yeah, today. Yeah, and we wish you... Good luck with without the Houston. You'll probably see be, see us. I in hope one so. Of those yeah, sessions. you guys should come. Yes, absolutely. We, absolutely. we need a little bit of. We're sharpening all here of in Sugarland, right? Yeah, so yeah absolutely. We need a bit of sharpening of knives. All the desi magic yeah. happens in Sugarland, anyways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good, good. But thank you so much for joining okay. on this edition of Great. Mind Podcast slash interview. Uh, for all our listeners, we'll be back uh, soon. Please visit vedantahouston.org and uh, please follow uh, Mindmakers at M-I-N-D-M-A-K-E-R-S if you haven't yet. Till then, from Adit Sunanda and Joseph Amit, it's goodbye.